Had to be. Well, we're again, we're, well, we're glad that you're here, and uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series called Reality Check, and I hope you've been blessed and your mind has been exercised and you've been, been able to think about things differently in the course of this series. And we, I'm wondering if anybody remembers what our sermon was on last week, what we studied last week. Is God judgmental? That's exactly right. And we basically said yes, but really not in the way that we have thought of before in the past. And we boiled the judgment down to one question. What was it? Life or death? That was it. Life or death? Those that want to live and choose life uh, will be saved. Those that choose death and the way the world works and the current arrangement and they love the selfishness and the pride and the, all the stuff that's in this world aren't looking for a better life, aren't looking for something greater that we see in Jesus. So um, that's really it. And in the end, God doesn't give people something that they hadn't already asked for. And we see that with God's judgments all down through the ages. He never does something or execute judgment contrary to what people want. People have made their choice. In the end, God only gives people what they ask for, life or death. And so, the judgment is about saving life. Don't you remember that? We often think of the judgment as about ending life and destruction and God's apocalypse and He's taking His anger out on the world, but... Over and over and over again, we see God inviting us, calling us to really live, to really experience happiness, really experience love and joy, and uh, He is calling us to live a better life. And He said He sent His Son to give us eternal life. Amen? So the judgment isn't about ending life. The judgment is about preserving it. It's about preserving it. God is a God of life, and goodness, and love, and hope. And that's what we're going to talk about today, is hope. What is Christian hope? We're going to look at that from Scripture. What is hope really? Because there's a whole lot of different definitions and ideologies around hope. What is hope? For a lot of people, hope is just simply positive thinking. It's a positive outlook, wouldn't you say? That's the way a lot of people think of hope. It's a, positive, it's, a, it's a positive way of looking at the world. There's always hope. There's hope in a better time. There's hope that things are going to get better. There's hope, there's hope, there's hope. But for the Christian, hope is not just a positive way of thinking. Hope is not just a way of keeping your spirits up. Hope is actually a reality. It's a factually true thing. We're going to decide what that exactly is here in just a few minutes. Christian hope is much, much better, deeper, and wonderful than just a positive outlook on life. Christian hope is a present reality, not just an unachieved, unachieved dream. But before we dive in, let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer one more time. Father, thank you, Lord, for being with us, and thank you so much for joining us through this study. Help us to truly discover what hope is, because we need it in this world. 
And Lord, help us to realize that our faith is not just a different way of looking at things. There is a reality, there is a truth, there is a life there that's already a fact. And that is our hope. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what would you say robs us of hope in this world? There's a lot of it around us right now, isn't there? <laughs> Usually it's the circumstances that surround us. Don't you, don't you agree with that? That's generally what robs us of hope. We often operate only in the context of what's happening now. And the, the worse things get, the less hope we seem to have. And that's sort of just a human reaction, isn't it? The worse your circumstances get, the harder things are, the less hope we often have. Can you testify to that? Have you ever experienced that in your life? <laughs> no, no, nobody else besides me, huh? All right, you're all good and you never get discouraged. Or, Wow, that's fantastic. I wish we could all be that way. But it's our circumstances. And, and it's because of something similar to what we talked about last week, sort of current arrangement thinking. I am wired to interpret my outlook on this world based on what's happening in my immediate life. And then we react or respond to those current circumstances, don't we? And what we often do is we try to remedy our current circumstances with our own plans. If things are lousy, we try to fix them, don't we? The problem is, often when we try to fix them, what ends up happening? We often make it worse. Not always, but quite often we make it worse. And that's because we are relying on our own ability to fix the problem as opposed to just trusting in God, being still and knowing that He is God. But, and, and according to our current circumstances, the worse things get, often the rut that we get into is we begin to think there is no hope. The worse things get around us, the harder it is to have a positive attitude. Isn't that true? A few of you are nodding yes. Yes, it's, I mean, we, we have a tendency to get discouraged. And I think it's just a natural thing, isn't it? It's no fun when things are hard. It's no fun when we have to modify our comforts in life because something else has happened. I mean, this virus is a perfect example of that. Uh, just everything that's happening around us in our world and in our government, everything is just, there's upheaval, and it's easy to get discouraged because we as human beings, that's just how we react and how we respond. It's easy to lose hope. And then what do we often do when we lose hope? We run to solutions that only dig our hole deeper. We run to remedies that create more of a problem than give us a solution. But what if, what if there was hope in a different way? What if there was a, a reality, a present living truth that was hope that transcends any of our circumstances? 
Because you know that's really what Scripture gets at with us, is that there is a truth, there is a life, there is a hope that transcends completely whatever is happening in your life right now. And that's what we're called to have faith in. Faith in a reality, faith in a truth, faith in a God who transcends, He's above our circumstances. The problem is, when times get tough, it seems like it makes it really hard to believe and trust that you can be calm and have a positive attitude when times get tough. Are you with me? It's hard to believe that God is good when life is hard. It's hard to believe when God, that God is peace when all we have is stress. It's hard to believe. And you may even in your mind acknowledge that and that believe that to be true, but yet you begin to question it. And you begin to say, is it all a lie? Does God really care? Is He really peace? And maybe some of us even come to the conclusion where we start asking questions like, does he even really exist? See, our current circumstances affect our attitude, and our attitude begins to affect how we see God. But again, that is current arrangement thinking, the way the world works thinking, like we talked about last week. These are the things that rob us of hope, the stuff around us, the things that we can see. Since sin began, creation has been asking these questions. You see, this is not a new problem. You know, that's one of the biggest tools of the enemy. You know that, right? He, he gets us to believe that nobody has ever had such great hardship as what we're going through at the moment. So that we begin to justify our actions and justify our behavior, and justify our choices... Because we say, nobody else has ever gone through this, and I've got to fix it. Maybe you've done that in your life. You begin to think that you're the only one that has suffered the way that you're suffering at the moment. The, the, the enemy loves to do that. But in all of these circumstances of, of hardship and trial and discouragement, we ask this question, what is true? What's reality? Is there a God of peace? Is there a God of love? Is He really who He says He is? Or is it all a lie? People throughout time have been asking this question. And what I want to submit to you today is that Christian hope is not a, just a positive attitude. It's a present reality. What do I mean by that? I want to take your minds back to the first century. And those of you that know a little bit about me, you know that uh, my background is in psychology. So I love to think about how people think. And I want to paint this picture a little bit for you for just a second. So we're in the first century, about the time of Jesus. And what kind of conditions are the Jewish people living under at the moment? They're living under Roman occupation, right? And, and the Romans sort of keep their hands off from what the Jews are doing, but at the same time, there's a Roman presence, and they know that the land is not theirs, and uh, there's all this tension between the Romans and the Jews. And in the mind of a Jewish person in the first century, 
You've got to be asking questions to God. Because He's made many promises to you over the years, over the generations. What were some of those promises that you can think of that God made to them? Made to the, the nation of Israel, made to the Jewish people. What were some of those promises? He'll make them a great nation. They won't lack for food or water. They'll live in a land of milk and honey. They'll, uh, th they'll be the head and not the tail. In other words, uh, the nations will look to them as innovative and smart and intelligent and the greatest example of what humanity can be. That uh, no one would die at a young age. That they would be the kings and queens of the world and, and the Gentiles will come to their, their in, uh, stand in awe of them. All these Old Testament promises that God made to the Jewish people. Yet here they were under the rule of yet another foreign power, the Romans. And this had been going on for thousands of years. So what kinds of questions do you think would have been in their minds? Why us? Is God a liar? Is He just? Is He really exist? Does He love us? Why hasn't He made good on any of these promises? What hope can we possibly have in our faith when nothing's gotten any better? I mean, He even made his, some wild comments like He's going to renew the earth and we're going to be in charge of it. That was their reading of many of those Old Testament prophecies. So, while these seem sort of grand and maybe not something we can relate to on the surface, but let me ask you this question. Do we ask those same questions today? Maybe not in that way, but we too ask those questions. Is God just? Is God righteous? Is He really who He says He is? Because the circumstances around me don't seem to match up to who He says He is. Everybody goes through it. Everyone has been facing those questions since time began. And here we are in the first century. God had made them all of these promises, and yet here they were. So, in true human form, in true human practice, what do the Jews begin to do? They begin to try and find fulfillment of these promises in other ways. What do I mean by that? Can anybody guess? They said, well, if it's not coming from God, we have to make it happen. So they started looking for a Messiah every day. And that Messiah became a figure that many of them believed would be this military leader who would lead them out of Roman oppression. Now let me ask you this question. Was that because what God promised? Or was that because of the way they were interpreting the word based on the circumstances around them? The second one. It's not what the word said. Now there are some, some, some verses there that alluded to that kind of a thing. But you can see how deceptive our perception can be and leads us to believe things that aren't true about God's Word. And then people wonder why there's so many mixed up Christians out there. 
Because what we as humans have a tendency to do is to look at our current circumstances, look at what's happening around us, and then read into the Bible things that aren't actually there. And that's what the first century Jews did. What was something else they did with their own people? See if some of you are tracking with me. So their idea was, we're going to look for a Messiah around every corner. We're going to hope that He comes up every day. What did they do among their own people? What's that? Created Messiahs. Yeah, they created Messiahs. Here's what they said. If we can just purify ourselves enough, if we can just be holy enough, if we can just keep the laws and the rules and the traditions purely enough, God will reward us by sending the Messiah. Does that sound like anybody you know? I don't want to get personal here, but there are some people that believe that about Seventh-day Adventism. If we can just create a holy enough environment, then the Lord will come. As if, and, and that, that runs along with the tenor of thought that says, it's my job to show the righteousness of God to the world. To prove that God is righteous. Now let me ask you this. Do you think that God is dependent on you and me to bring glory and honor to His name? We get to participate in that experience, but He's not dependent on us. These little creatures on this tiny little speck in some corner of the universe. He's not relying on us to prove that He's true. He has ways that are beyond our ways. And there was a man named Saul who was a Pharisee who so believed that Israel had to purify itself enough. You see, he saw this new brand, this new cult that was coming on the scene as a huge threat to Israel because he saw that it was going to further degrade the people, further degrade their faith and their traditions and their customs. He saw the Christians as a threat. And the threat was... If they contaminate us, God will never reward us with the coming Messiah. So, how did he, what did he do and what, what actions did he justify? Persecution, even being responsible for the death of Christians. My friends, don't let that ever be said of you. I spiritually killed off people trying to protect my traditions or my customs. God is not dependent on the Port Charlotte Seventh-day Adventist Church to glorify or prove that His name is righteous. Here's the thing. Will he do that in us if we 
honor Him and glorify Him and invite Jesus into our hearts? Yes. But if we get to the place where we are so protective of our environment that we are pushing people away, we're on the wrong side. We're on the wrong side. Because God is not dependent on us to force an environment here that would prove that He is holy. As if fallen human beings can prove that God is holy. Perfectly and fully. So, I want to take you to the experience of Saul. Go with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Saul, who became Paul, came to a knowledge of faith that was not anything that he was expecting. It was beyond his scope of knowledge. Um, and nothing he had even considered before he met the Lord. So Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. Romans 3:21. Have you got it? All right, check this out. But now, the what? The righteousness of God has been manifested, or in other words, has come to be apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What? What are you talking about, Paul? What does that mean that the righteousness of God has been made to be, made evident, come to life? The, the righteousness of God has come to life apart from the law, but the law and the prophets bore witness to it. What does that mean? Here's what he's saying. Yeah, the law and the prophets testify to the holiness and righteousness of God. Wouldn't you agree with that? So what's the problem? Is it the law and the prophets? Or was it, interestingly enough, in my Bible, the first usage of that word law is lowercase. Is it in yours? It's lowercase. And then the second time, it's uppercase. And his point here is this. The true righteousness and holiness and the true character of God has come to be, come to be made known apart from the way we thought it would. You following me? Yes or no? Because the law was, was their version of saying the way we do things and our culture and our traditions and our ideologies and uh, the way we see the world, and how we think this should all play out. If we do all of that perfectly, we will be shown to be this righteous and holy people, and God will reward us with the coming of the Messiah. But Paul says, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, has been made evident apart from that. And then he goes on to say, and that's what the Bible said would happen all along. That's what he means when he says, even though the law and the prophets testified to it. So what he's doing is he's introducing a manner in which God has made known that he is holy, that he is righteous, that he's good, that he keeps his word. Because remember, everybody was wondering, Lord, you made all these promises to us. 
You said we'd be the head and not the tail. You said that we wouldn't live under the oppression of anyone else, uh, other nations. You said that you'd renew the earth. You said that no one would die at a young age. Yet all this stuff is still happening. And so Israel said, well, we've got to fix this. What can we do? Oh, maybe, maybe Barabbas is the Messiah. Or maybe Simon bar Kokhba is the, is the Messiah. All these characters that rose up and they tried to force it. And then they said, well, it's because we're not holy enough. It's because we're not pure enough. It's current arrangement thinking. It's thinking according to human ways, human world. And, the, and what Paul is saying, God has made known His righteousness and His goodness and His holiness in a way that nobody expected. Are we all together? What is that way? Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay. Now, we're doing a deep dive here today. You're going to have to hang with me. We misinterpret this passage of Scripture. Do you know why? Because we have taken on an ideology that arose during the Dark Ages. And that ideology was, God the Father wants to kill you, and God the Son wants to save you. So if it weren't for the intercession of Jesus and Him standing in between, the Father would murder you because you're unholy. That's medieval pagan thinking. It's Zeus up in heaven with lightning bolts. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Are you with me? So if the, if the Son wants to save you, so does the Father. The Father's not just sitting back there waiting for Jesus to get out of the way so He can throw a lightning bolt at you. That's pagan thinking. And so here, when we read the righteousness by faith, we, we, we read this passage of Scripture with the context of what do I do in order to make myself worthy to God? That is not what this passage is about. That is not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is, goes back to what we were just saying in the previous verse. God has made Himself to be known righteous, holy, and good apart from us in a way nobody expected. So we're going to go back to this verse here in just a second. So go to verse 25. Or 24. 25. 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood, as a substitute for us by His blood, to be received by what? Faith. Why did He do it? Did He do it because He was angry at us? Did He do it because without this that we couldn't go to heaven? Is that what this verse is saying? Read the next few words. It says, This was to show whose righteousness? God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. And then, it, and then we have it again. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So Paul, what you're telling me is that Jesus proved God to be righteous 
in order to justify himself? Isn't that what he's saying? It says, so that he might be just. Why would God ever not be just? We just talked about it, remember? In human thinking, people thought he was unjust. Their hope was gone because they believed that God hadn't kept his word. They believed that God hadn't kept his promises. They believed that maybe he wasn't there, or if he was, he didn't care. So they were calling into question whether God was righteous whether he was holy, whether he was good, whether he would ever make good on his promises. And so let me ask you this question. Is this about how we relate to God? Is this passage about how we relate to God, or is it how God relates to us? Keep reading. Keep reading. It was, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What then becomes our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? In other words, can God only save people that are belong to our faith? Can God only save people that are Jewish, Paul is saying? Because what you all are saying is that if they don't keep the Jewish ways, God will never look upon them as worthy. But Paul says, it was never about that in the first place. We all thought for centuries that it would be us. This is what first century Jews are thinking. We all thought for centuries that it would be us. We would be the ones that would live a life that would be so exemplary of God's holiness, the world would go, oh, God is holy, God is just. And Paul's saying, it was never supposed to be that way. God had a plan to justify himself before the world. And what was that plan? We read it here, what was it? The sacrifice of his own son. So now let's read this passage again. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been made clear, manifested, apart from the law, apart from our traditions and our customs. Although the law and the prophets bore witness to us. In other words, the way we thought we should live and would bring glory to God, we weren't even reading the Bible right. We missed the point. That's what that first verse is saying there. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you see that? They thought that if they were perfect, it would prove that God was righteous and holy. They thought that if they could live just right, God would honor them by giving them the Messiah. And here he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. We fail. We couldn't do it. We should have known, Paul says. And then it goes on. 
in verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, Christ Jesus, put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. God's righteousness. Not yours, not mine, His. You see, we see the cross of Jesus as a way to get righteousness. I have faith in Jesus, and because I have faith in Jesus, God puts on me righteousness, and now God can love me. That's how we view it. That's wrong. What we believe is that I have to change in order for God to accept me. That is not what Paul's saying. You know what he's saying? God changed so that you would accept Him. Can you imagine that? This is what Saul's saying. He's saying, God put forth His Son and hung Him on a cross to prove to you that He's worthy of your love. God allowed His Son to leave the glories and the riches of heaven where angels continually sing His praises and sing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, where He can hear the stars sing and He can watch all of His created beings. He, he left the glory of heaven that is beyond our comprehension and He came down to this little tiny world full of sin and suffered and died on a cross to prove to you and me that He is worthy of our love. God proved to humanity that He is holy and righteous and good and lovable by putting forth His Son. And so now you might be asking, what is this whole righteousness by faith thing here? This is, this is what it is. If you believe in what Jesus has done, then you understand who God is. Are you with me, yes or no? When you see it, and that's what Paul's saying. He's saying God put his full character, his whole heart on display in the person of Jesus Christ so that we would look at Jesus and go, oh, it's all true. It's all true, every bit of it. It's all true. So that we would be convinced, so our hearts would be broken and we would say, God is King of kings and Lord of lords. You know what righteousness is? To believe that God is righteous through Jesus. That's what it is. God isn't waiting for you to be good enough in order to save you or love you. That's not what he's waiting for. He's waiting for you and me to look at his son and say, it's all true. It's all true. I believe you. I love you. I trust you. I'll obey you. You see, obedience comes, yes, through faith. But do you know why it comes? Because you trust him. Because of Jesus, we know that God is trustworthy. Are you with me? And that's why righteousness comes by faith. It comes by believing that God is righteous. So you say, Lord, I know that all that good stuff we heard about you is true. And so whatever you ask, I'll do it. 
And not only that, he also gives us his spirit to accomplish it. Because he knows that we can't do it on our own. Are you with me? The God of the universe changed in order to prove himself worthy of our love. That's why scripture says, oh, what manner of love the Father has for those that are called the sons of God. Imagine that kind of love. You know, God forbid my, my children after ha ever have to, to, to die for someone else. Give their life. Some of you have uh, military children, maybe some that have even served and given their lives. And uh, if that ever has to happen, and I meet the person that they laid down their life for, I'm going to expect that that person live a good life. Because, you know, it'll feel wasted if they don't. You with me? But you know what? God loves us so much that he still gives us a choice. He gave his only son in order to prove that he is worthy of our love. And he still allows us to choose and say, do you believe me? Do you trust me? It, it, it's just an incredible thought. Beyond any love that humanity could possibly comprehend, it's, it's truly incredible. And so this hope that we have, my friends, it's not positive thinking. It's not just a good attitude toward the circumstances and saying, oh, you know, I, I'm going to have a positive attitude no matter what happens in my life. That's not what Christian hope is. Do you know what Christian hope is? Being convinced that all the promises of God are true. And being convinced because of Jesus our Savior. So Christian hope is not just positive thinking. Christian hope is a historically proven reality. Christian hope is flesh and blood and a person that really lived. That's Christian hope. So that when we read the promises of God and He says, I'm coming again. He says, I've got a land where you'll never die and you'll never be hungry. And, 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 and a promise that says not only that, but I'm going to live in you today to give you the good things that you need. It's not just something where we go, oh yeah, maybe it'll be true. I'm just going to keep a positive attitude. That's not Christian hope. Christian hope is being convinced that it's absolutely true and not because just God said it or told a nice story or wrote it in a book. Christian hope is a historical fact. Christian hope is an assurance. It's a... It's an undeniable truth that Jesus lived, died, rose again, and so you know that this world ain't it. So you know that there's a world where there's no more suffering or crying or sorrow or pain, so that you know that there's true selflessness and love and joy. Christian hope isn't just being happy through hardship. Christian hope is being convinced that Jesus is my living hope. Christian hope is Jesus our Savior. 
So, here's the thing. You can still get a little discouraged with your circumstances. You know, sometimes as Christians, we, we're, oh, you should never be sad. Are you kidding me? You should never be worried. You should never have fear. That, that would be to not be human. I mean, I imagine Jonah was scared in the belly of the whale. I imagine that even though Peter was, you know, sleeping before the night of his execution, I imagine he wasn't looking upon that with, hey, hey, I, getting, getting executed tomorrow, you know, clicking his heels. I imagine the Hebrew boys were pretty afraid before they went into that fiery furnace, weren't they? So to, to have hope as a Christian isn't to not have fear or sorrow or even discouragement sometimes. Christian hope is to know that there is a truth beyond your discouragement. A truth beyond your fear. Deeper and more true and, and, and better than the fear that you're experiencing at the moment. There is something more concrete. There is something deeper. There is something more true than what's going on around me. And you can be convinced of it, not just because God wrote it in a book or said it's true or told you a nice story. You can be convinced of it because a man really lived and he said that he was God and he gave his life for you and me and he rose again. So Christians don't... You know one of the worst issues with, with mental illness? It's being anxious that you have anxiety. It's being depressed because you have depression. It's... It's, it's, you know, worrying that your faith isn't strong enough. And as, as human beings, it's, it's all of these experiences that get us discouraged and, and become bigger than our faith, and it makes us want to just give up. But I want to free you from that today. Sometimes it's okay to be discouraged. Sometimes it's okay to be depressed. Sometimes it's okay to be anxious. Sometimes it's even okay for you to not have a positive attitude or even have hope in the current circumstances. You following what I'm saying? In our current circumstances, it is human to experience all of those things. Because Christian hope isn't just a positive attitude as you push through that stuff. That's not Christian hope. Christian hope says, you know what, I'm depressed today, but there is a rock-solid truth deeper than my depression. I'm discouraged today, but there is a higher and holier and more beautiful hope and truth beyond my discouragement. It's like Job said, though he slay me, I'm not happy with the circumstances I'm going through, Job said, but I'll still trust him. You don't have to be happy with your current circumstances. It's okay sometimes to be discouraged or need help. But ultimately, Christians have a deeper hope beyond that discouragement. And don't you ever say things like, you know, because a person's depressed or has anxiety that they don't believe in Jesus enough. Because depression and anxiety often has nothing to do with your faith. It's your health. Are you with me? It's your health. Don't say a person isn't holy enough or, 
are, are spiritual enough because they're going through mental illness. That's not it. It's because this world, through genetics or, or, or circumstances or both together, have dealt somebody a deck of cards that's more than they can bear. And a person can have a deeper, rooted, rock-bottom faith in the fact that Jesus is hope and still have depression and anxiety. A person can still struggle, but be convinced that there's a world better than this one. I mean, for us to live in this world and go through what we go through, it would be unnatural to never be depressed. Because we know there's a world that's better. We know that we're not made to live in these circumstances. Christian hope is deeper and higher at the same time and better and more glorious than what we experience around us. It's not just pushing through with a positive attitude. Christian hope is a man who was also God, and his name is Jesus. And he proved to us that God is worthy of our love and trust and that there is something better than this world. You believe that today? Amen. Christian hope is something so much more better and sustainable, by the way, than expecting to wake up in the best mood. Now, that's not an excuse to be up, get up and be grumpy all the time. But at the same time, we can be real humans and experience emotion, but never have our faith waver because we know that these things last a little while, but God's character is eternal. And it will never waver or go away. So let me ask you this question. Do you have hope today? Maybe even if you're in a bad mood or you came depressed today or you had some anxiety this morning before you came to church or, or you're discouraged or you're sad because of what's going on in your life. Do you have hope? Amen. That's the better question. It's not are you depressed today. It's the question of do you have hope? It's not are you happy at the moment. It's do you have hope? And that hope is not just a positive attitude. That hope is an eternal truth that convinces us that God is good. And God loves me. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. That is our hope. That is our truth. And that is what we hold on to. And by the way, when you focus on those things, it tends to make your day a little brighter. Do you have hope today? Yeah. Will you stand as we sing our closing song?